Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Stephen Kersner, television personality most well-known for Ed the Sock, Canada's most opinionated sock puppet. Stephen created and has voiced Ed since first appearing on local cable television in 1987 and subsequently across the country via Canada's music station, Much Music. You'll remember this guy. Ed the Sock. From humble beginnings, he rose to become a national hero. The country's most popular VJ. Welcome back to uh, Much Music. Ed the Sock here. Star of the nation's most legendary holiday tradition. Welcome to the Crumage! With a smash hit late night series that obliterated the competition. Daring to say what people at home were thinking. Speaking truth to power and bringing celebrities down to earth. Elevating him to the revered status as a Canadian icon. Stephen, let's jump right in. What is the status today of Ed the Sock? Uh, Well, as we talk, it's kind of an exciting time. We're about to doing doing a podcast mostly for fun with uh, my wife, Leanna, but not Ed's wife, my wife. Okay, Um, (laughs) to be clear. To be clear, uh, called Ed and Red's podcast, uh, which we do once a week. Uh, It's on a radio station run by some friends, uh, an AM station in Toronto. And uh, we do it because, you know, we enjoy doing it. But about to launch a uh, podcast called The Late Great Ed the Sock, which will be more like what people remember from kind of a cross between much music and uh, city TV programming. Uh, looking forward to that. I've already recorded the the first episode. Uh, going to be doing a syndicated radio show uh, with Ed the Sock on music stations. You know, it's one of those shows where y- it can play on different format types of music, so we don't talk about the music. We talk about other stuff. So that's going to launch probably in May. There's talk of a documentary uh, being made about Ed. And... Uh, New Music Nation, which uh, we launched uh, a while ago, which is a much music style channel focusing on videos from uh, independent, unsigned or small label artists. We launched, we we had uh, great plans. um, And like uh, all battle plans that don't survive contact with the enemy, a bunch of things didn't work out like we thought. And COVID really threw a wrench into things as far as our being where we were able to go and shoot. So uh, we're relaunching it as New Music Now, and it's launching uh, in April on Roku, which is a developing uh, platform. It was the platform that did the Weird Al Yankovic uh, biopic, um, and it's in 63 63 or 65 million homes uh, right now. So we're going to have a channel there, as well as the channel will continue online, and adding an audio program as well to uh, New Music Now, so that those who don't have videos can still get some some spotlight on their music. So uh, pretty busy. Clearly, lots going on with you. Well, let's go back all the way. Let's get the Steven Kersner story, which will, of course, lead us into the Ed the Sock story. You are a Toronto kid. What hospital were you born at? Where'd you grow up? Uh, born at Mount Sinai. Grew up Me too. In... Shout out to Mount Sinai. Shout out to Mount Sinai. Uh, grew up in uh, North York by Newtonbrook, <laughs> Newtonbrook uh, Secondary School, Fisherville Junior High, for those who know the general area, um, and went to Kenton Public School. Shout out for Kenton. Been closed, yeah, as a, 
been shut closed as a school for I think about thirty five years. Um, it's and, just and, a it's a board. The board rents it out to people now. Um, and, and Stephen, I should point out, you probably, as I did, I went to uh, Zion Heights and Ay Jackson. We love to bowl at Newtonbrook, but that whole plaza is now gone. Oh yeah, Newtonbrook Bowlerama. <laughs> yeah, the uh, I think when that place opened, they installed used carpets. Um, <laughs> True. It, it, and and uh, vending machines, candy vending machines with those nuts. You know those candied nuts that if you put the money in, and they never came out because they were all one big glob. And the formica. Like, where did all that go? I would love to have had one of those formica tables that uh, you used to score. And now it's like everything else in Toronto. It's condos. Absolutely. The only constant is change. So I, I cut you off as you went in 1984 as a teenager is when you basically became a volunteer and got into uh, television. Why don't you start from there, if you don't mind? Well, there was uh, I had I had wanted to make movies, actually. That was my passion. I got a uh, Super 8 sound camera with the proceeds from my bar mitzvah and, and shot, uh, you know, shot films for school projects. The teachers were at Fitcherville very, shout out to Mrs. Krebs, uh, very supportive of allowing different ways of doing projects. So I did those movies. And back in the old days, you had to, you, you had to cut with like a blade and tape the pieces together. It's not like today where you can do it in a phone. But I wanted to do stuff that was didn't take. First of all, it wasn't as costly. Uh, it cost a lot of money to buy the film. It cost a lot of money to process the film. So I w went to, there was, I lived in the Rogers Cable area, but, a, you know, next door was a cable company uh, called Willow Downs, which changed to Newton Cable, named after the family that owned it. And it was a smaller place. And I thought, this is a better place to be able to get, to, to do more. So I went to Newton Cable. I created a show with some friends and we did the show. And you have to understand this place, this was the beginning of my life as a sitcom uh, because the place was so run down. The uh, studio was, the, the, the lighting grid were plumbing tubes and the lights were the lights that road crews use at night. So they weren't proper uh, lights. There was one stage and you had uh, a black curtain or a light blue curtain, or you could have the wallpaper with the royal blue uh, curtains that was used for the Italian variety shows. The, the staff were clowns. I won't even get into the details of the guy who was in charge of the place at the time. Suffice to say, it was my first uh, exposure to um, sociopathic behavior. Uh, um, <laughs> and not my last, but my first exposure and probably the most profound exposure to sociopathic behavior in my life. And uh, I continued to, uh, you know, I, I, we, did a, we did our show and I just found the place that there was so much opportunity because nobody wanted to do anything. Everybody was lazy and I was eager. So I, uh, you know, I said, I'll, I'll take over this. I'll take over that. I took over producing the shows that were made by pains in the ass because, you know, it was volunteer. So people would come in to do their their programs. They would they would create the programs. They come in. We would shoot them, and in those days there was no editing. We just put them on the air. And uh, there were some people that were difficult to deal with. So I and no one wanted to deal with them. So I was like, I'll deal with them. You, okay, yep. Kersner, you want to deal with them? You go ahead. One seniors group was the first the first people I dealt with, um, and they were incorrigible. But I just kept. I saw there was so much opportunity, 
and I just kept basically making myself essential, um, changing things and making it so that they relied on me. Uh, I started uh, working there uh, as a part-timer after school when I was in high school. Um, started two days a week, then eventually it became five days a week. And I stayed there right through high school. And then when I graduated high school, I uh, was promoted to assistant program director, a full-time job. See, the front office would leave at five o'clock. And that was the owners. They'd leave at five. And programming department opened at three till, till 11 because people were coming in after work to do their shows. And after the uh, front office left and the owners left, the program director would take off. He used to cruise these single sleazy singles magazines and he would find sleazy singles to go and uh, have sexual encounters with and so he would leave me uh, in charge of the place i mean he was doing that when i was 15 and so eventually the uh the owners found out i i ref i refused to rat on him he got another job at another tv station but he convinced them that they needed him to run the place because I was incompetent. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know this, uh, so I so when they said they knew he wasn't coming in, I said, "Oh no, he's he's coming in." I kept covering for him, and they said, "Well, we're gonna fire him, and we want you to take over." Now at that point, you know, and then he told they they said we wanted you to take over as soon as he got this other job, but he said you weren't capable. Once I heard that, I was like, "All right, that's loyalty <laughs> ends right there." Yep. So I took over the place. And it was, you know, it was a small cable station. And the only way to distinguish ourselves, I mean, we had no budget, like no budget. The programming vehicle was my car. Uh, yeah. Officially, <laughs> the programming, on paper, the programming vehicles were the two luxury cars that the owner's sons drove. Um, but I used my car. Uh, the only uh, things we would receive would be when the owners got new furniture, we would get their old furniture to use on set, but they had very European tastes. So the furniture weighed a thousand pounds. So trying to lift the stuff up and some days we just didn't have enough people to, to move the furniture on there. And I thought the only way we're going to be able to do anything here is to distinguish ourselves by being different, embracing the fact that we don't have any money and mm -hmm. instead hang our lantern on personalities, strong characters, strong personalities, because people like to watch people. So that's what we did. I gave shows to, we called them local lunatics. They, uh, you know, they weren't certifiable, but they were odd and different and eccentric, but interesting. And the, the, the type of shows we did ranged from kids clown shows to uh, alternative health shows, to sports shows, to political shows. I started hosting political shows. Um, I was, uh, uh, at that time, it was, it was the Reagan era. And so I was uh, conservative and uh, hosted a lot of shows. Uh, I did two hours a week live and one hour or one half hour a week uh, taped as a debate show. And I would take phone calls and, and talk about things that, that were clearly, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> out of my depth, um, but spoke as if I knew everything. That's where Ed came from. Uh, there was an association of cable companies because each cable company owned a part of the city. So we would get together and we would share programming on Friday nights and Wednesday nights. Um, they made me the chair of that uh, committee as soon as I got promoted to program director. 
I mean, at the time, I thought it was a bit of a, you know, wow, that's a vote of confidence. You know, when in fact, it was like, no one wanted to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so give it to the kid. So Rogers bought the company, and they hated me because I did things completely differently than them. I, they were by the book, and I was like, what's a book? So mm -hmm. they hated me, and the first week I was there, I got written up by the, uh, the manager for not coming, not for being late to a 9.30 a.m. meeting when my studio, they closed at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. My studio closed at 11.30. I was done maybe at 11.30. So, but they were just trying to get rid of me. Mm -hmm. And then a new vice president came in and we went to a uh, retreat in Niagara Falls for all of the Southern Ontario programming people. And it was a, there was a dinner and no one wanted to sit next to this guy because they were afraid. And, you know, I was fearless. So I went and sat down next to him and we struck up a conversation and he liked what I had to say. And thereafter, I was protected. And I managed to, I refused to do things the Rogers way, which was to produce stuff that was just as dull as you could imagine. I took things in a different direction. And... The first year I was there, two of the shows I created um, went up against uh, two of the shows the other Rogers people uh, in Toronto had created, and those two shows were sort of their their pride and joy. My two shows were, you know, the Turds and the Punch Bowl, and uh, my two shows won. And after that, there seemed to be a shift in maybe he knows what he's doing, and so changed a lot of the the output uh, and the attitude there. Uh, you know, it's very sad that Rogers Community Television, community television in general, uh, doesn't really exist anymore. CRTC gave the cable companies the option. You can spend the money on the community channel or you can spend it on local news. They made the right choice going with local news, but it's still, it's unfortunate because that was a great training ground um, for people. It's uh, a bygone oh, era. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, and, you know, the thing that's sad is that so little of it exists on tape. So that it's not up on YouTube. And so it's almost like it, it never happened. You know, people looking back, Gen Z or whatever, they'll, have, they'll never have known that this thing existed, uh, which, is, which is sad. I still have a bunch of three-quarter inch tapes. It's a very old format um, that I'm planning to digitize. I've got a three-quarter inch machine. So there will be some really early Ed stuff. And I tried to save an episode of each of the different kinds of shows that we did. Um, that I'm planning to, I'm just going to get a YouTube channel and just put the stuff up there so people can see what this crazy community television stuff was like back in the day. Well, um, let's talk about Ed's origin story. So effectively, Stephen, you're running a community television station just out of high school. You developed the Ed the Sock character, legend, i.e. the internet, says that requiring a co-host on short notice, you took a sock and other supplies from the craft closet, made a sock puppet with glue caps for eyes, you named the puppet Ed after Ed Asner. Is this accurate? This is true. This is true. <laughs> I had a friend who was uh, hosting a variety show, like a you know talk show, comedy talk show. Um, but he wasn't. He didn't have a schedule like everybody else that came in. You know, Wednesday at seven p.m. or whatever. Um, he would come in when he had time, and so his co and he needed a co-host because he was brilliant but not focused. So he didn't know when an interview had really pretty much wrapped up and to move on. So we needed a co-host. But the only person who you could guarantee was going to be there every day of the week, you know, whenever he popped in, was me. But I was doing political programming. I wasn't about to, to go and be a sidekick on, on this show. So 
took the personalities of a couple of adults that uh, me and my friends knew, who we had been lampooning, a couple of men, uh, merged them, uh, went to the supply closet where the, the stuff for the kids' show was. Uh, there was a fake park for the puppet set. Uh, it was green fun fur that was the grass. So I cut some of that, uh, used that as hair. Uh, Yoohoo glue stick tops. Um, in those days, Letra set, which was letters, they were vinyl letters you would peel off to make, you know, signs, you know, washroom or whatever the hell. I used those as the irises. There was a sock in there. There was a pair of socks. They, they were still, you know, with the hang tag, so they weren't something people wore. <laughs> I grabbed one of those, and I happened to have, for some reason, a Colt cigar. Remember those, those things that when you're a teenager, you, you smoke them thinking that you were a tycoon? Um, <laughs> yeah. Those wine-tipped? So uh, put all that together and, yeah, named the character Ed after Ed Asner, the, who was playing Lou Grant on a popular TV show, Mary Tyler Moore Show, uh, a sitcom. Um, of course, the and, kids today know him from the voice of Carl from the, the Up The voice movie. of Carl from Up. That's right. That's right. And, you know, Ed was born. And uh, that show, because of it was so scattered, it, it eventually ended. But then we, Ed teamed up with a guy named Stan Glass, who was this hapless, balding guy in his late 30s, who was, con he was doing singles programming, and there was just something about him that Ed could abuse him, and no one felt sorry for him. Because, um, you know, sometimes when you're insulting somebody, they feel, they feel bad for the person being insulted. In this case, no one felt sad for Stan, and he played his role very well. And then he quit, because he had a job. He got a job, and he was too busy. Uh, went with uh, comedian Eric Tunney. Uh, may he rest in peace. One of the greatest stand-up comics uh, I've ever seen was Eric Tunney. He, was, he turned stand-up comedy into an art form. Um, so he, he and he was very slick, polished, upper you know upper crust type guy. And so him contrasting with Ed, it worked. And that's when the show really caught. And uh, you know Ed, I called it Ed's Night Party. And we uh, went, you know, built from there. It became a very popular show on Cable 10. And then all the Cable 10s across the country grabbed the show to run Fridays at 11.30. And we got a lot of press, uh, local and national. And uh, CBC actually was the first, were the first people to say, we'd like you to come bring your show here. But I knew that we, you know, CBC would, especially CBC of that time, would have watered us down so much there would have been nothing left. So when uh, Moses Zneimer and Jay Switzer came, uh, may Jay rest in peace, uh, and said they'd like to uh, they'd like to do the show, I partnered with a fellow named John Brunton who runs Insight Productions, and uh, we we took Ed to you know we took the show to City TV, and Chum also wanted Ed as a VJ on Much Music. So we're talking late 1994 at this point. You know things grew from there. Humble Howard, a radio legend, was the co-host because Eric decided he wanted a, a solo career, so he didn't want to come with the show. So Humble Howard was the, the co-host for a couple of seasons. And then we switched to a comedian named uh, Craig Campbell for a number of seasons. Um, in the final couple of seasons, uh, my wife, Leanna, who had been the... She started out as a dance coordinator and then had so many great ideas. She became a uh, associate producer, then a producer, and then the senior producer. Um, of the show, but she was also writing all the time, writing material, and was part of the evolution of Ed from uh, a vaudeville shtick to a, you know, a commentator. 
um, and she was the person behind the fromage shows that were so successful on Much Music. She became the co-host. We changed the dynamic, so it was male-female. I quit Much Music because management had changed and was terrible. And uh, we did Ed's Night Party for one season under the new owners of City TV, Rogers, uh, Rogers uh, Communications. And after 14 years, it was just, Rogers wanted to rebrand City TV, um, which meant you couldn't have someone like Ed on who very much embodied the brand that was City TV. Um, so it was just, and I was ready to, to, to take a break. So um, that's when that happened. I want to ask you about the initial character of Ed. Was it simply to insult people like a Don Rickles type or, or more that it gave a vehicle to say things that real people wanted to but couldn't say? Initially, it was an insult. It was like Don Rickles. Um, and, you know, old vaudeville shtick. Like, it was, it was cliched stuff, but it came out of the puppet, so it made it somewhat new. But the, part of the, the fun was that it was this old shticky stuff. But the character grew. And evolved because you can only do that kind of thing for so long. And in the second season, I had been watching a show called Married with Children, which was very popular at the time. It was a send-up of sitcoms about families, but it was decidedly not wholesome. And they eventually uh, went from having stories as the sitcom with the, the you know embroidered by the humor to just constantly upping the shock value when there was really no story left. It was just scenes they could throw together to increase the shock value. And I looked at it and said, that's the, that's the direction we'll have to go with Ed, or we can go in another direction. And I decided, let's go in a smarter direction. So the second season of Ed's Night Party started doing topical com uh, comedy. And my uh, partner, uh, John, didn't like it. Uh, City TV didn't like it. They were mad because here we were doing political comedy, in a sense, or, or social, social conscience comedy, and it was a big change. But I stuck to my guns, and uh, you know we, we continued to grow in that direction. The big evolution happened as a result of much music. Now, Ed was the, really the turd in the punch bowl at much music until 1999. So it was like five years when... Uh, the person who was second in command of Much Music, David Kynes, had to constantly say, champion Ed and say, no, no, it's going to develop, you'll see. Ed was not uh, viewed favorably by a lot of people there. Mm -hmm. And uh, in what changed was two things. In 1999, it was Woodstock 99, and Ed was part of the live coverage there. And I could see what was about to happen the night of the riot and said so in advance on the air. And Sook Yin and I were live on the air as the, as the riot broke out. And we were providing coverage. And uh, that gave people a sense that, okay, the, the puppet has something more to say here. And then uh, Liana and I took over Fromage, which had been basically canceled because the person who created it, uh, Christopher Ward, had moved to L.A. to be a full-time songwriter after successfully writing uh, a song called Black Velvet for Alana Miles. <clears throat> so he wasn't available anymore, and the person who had produced the show with Christopher, he had gone to another channel within the Chum family, so the, it was just left there, orphaned. And Leanne and I decided, we're going to do it, but we're going to do it different. We're going to, um, rather than the previous approach, which was to make fun of foreign videos that we found funny because of cultural differences, 
or making fun of videos made by Canadian bands that clearly didn't have the money to compete but were doing their best. That was That's shooting fish in a barrel. There's no sport there. So instead, it was 99. We made it the worst music videos of all time. We selected the videos. We wrote the material. We edited the show. And we, uh, without anybody knowing. And we just, I just gave the show into Denise Donlan, who was a, a visionary, um, who ran much music and made it into the good stuff people remember. And she said, what's this? And I said, it's fromage. And she said, I thought that was canceled. I said, well, I guess it's not. And, you know, this is the way things worked at Much Music. They didn't do a focus group. Right? She said, okay. She watched. She said, okay, let's give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And it did remarkably well for them. Fromage had not done well previous to that. It was basically filler for the holiday season. This took off and, uh, you know, year to year, it just grew to the point where the ratings were so high, even in reruns, that they would package two, three hours of fromages together and run them back to back and still get higher ratings than the new stuff they were producing. So, you know, it became quite a thing. And uh, we did that until I think 2006, when I started to lose interest in working with the the management that was there at the time. Well, when Much Music no longer was Much Music, you did leave. And I wanted to ask, was it clear when you left that you owned Ed the Sock as an intellectual property, or did that become an issue? Oh, no, they, it was clear from the beginning. Uh, Even when I was, uh, you know, with Rogers, and they had bought Newton Cable, it was clear I owned Ed, because the owner of Newton Cable, Carl Newton, RIP. I made a deal with him that any show I create, I own because I will then invest money in sets and, you know, and, and stuff like that. And he won't have to pay anything. And, you know, if you're him, it's like, that's a great thing because who, who's, where's this ever going to go? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, so Rogers, Rogers initially tried to claim ownership of Ed, but they saw the paperwork and they, you know, just backed off. And City TV, uh, Chum, they acknowledged my ownership uh, from from the get go. I had a lawyer, yeah, though, of course. <laughs> of, of course, you can't do anything with lawyers. But no. obviously, looking uh, forward to today with everything you're working on, Stephen, that's obviously very important. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Stephen Kersner, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got other comedians, including Paul Reiser, John Biner, Ben Bankus, Andre Philippe Gagnon, and Tom Farley with memories of the great Chris Farley. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Steve, if you're okay with it, I wanted to get real behind-the-scenes stories on some of Ed the Sock's biggest celebrity interviews. So is it at all possible to speak directly to the Sock himself? Uh, he happens to be here in the office. Oh, you that's might, good. Can I go, go ask him? Please, please do. Okay, just just give me a minute on that, okay? Sure. Just give me a minute. Why the hell would I want to do that? Am I getting paid? All right, whatever. My public awaits. Hold on. Coming. All right. Yeah, hello. Hey, great to meet you, Ed. Welcome to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am Andrew Applebaum. How are you oh, today? Oh, is that who you are? All right. <laughs> I don't know anything about this, uh, Andrew Applebaum. Well, you have interviewed so many big names. I want to ask you about a few of the more interesting interactions you've had. Why don't we start with uh, Lenny Kravitz, who apparently, for unknown reasons, was joined by uh, Denzel Washington. 
Yeah, I had no idea Denzel was in the room. Uh, this was during the Much Music Video Awards. You have to understand, during, that, that's a, that was a live show. Um, you know, I think they've killed it now, but back in the day, it was the big show in Toronto, and all the big stars came. And in order to get interviews with all these stars, we would schedule who would, you know, who would talk to me at which time, and in the various green rooms up and down the five floors of the building. You know, they turned offices into green rooms and stuff. And uh, invariably, uh, the times got screwed up and the people weren't there when they were supposed to be or they wanted us there earlier. And Lenny had been um, a bit of a pill. He was upset because he had asked for a specific kind of chocolate chip cookie, which <laughs> he couldn't, we couldn't get them um, because they didn't sell it in Toronto. Um, so he was mad. This is the information that was given to me before I went in to talk to him. And so I go in to talk to him, and he's got a, like, the room is full of hangers on. And he is being Mr. Cool. You know, unflappable, you know, uh, a bit, a bit aloof. Uh, that's his, that's his deal. So, uh, I go to, and I dressed up kind of like him. For, <laughs> okay. I, I put on, uh, I, I put, put, I made, put my hair in dreads and things like that. Uh, just to make him more comfortable. And uh, I went in, you know, started talking to him. And I'm doing the interview and he's being, you know, tight-lipped, you know, not really giving answers, not totally looking. And then I asked him a question. I mentioned that he was, you know, something of a ladies' man and that the, the women in the building were going crazy that he was there. And I asked him a question that recognized this is years ago that you could not ask this question today. But I said to him, Lenny... In your experience, do you think women should be savored like a fine wine or guzzled like a Colt 45, which is a malt liquor? And he looks at me, and he looks away, and he looks up, he looks back at me, he looks away, and then he just breaks out laughing. He was trying not to laugh. His face, his whole face cracked, and the, the aura around him was completely different suddenly. And everyone in the room started laughing when he started laughing. And... Uh, then I hear crashing in the corner. I look over. There was one of those uh, uh, trays of, gla uh, of glasses of water that had been sitting on top of something, I guess, not very secure. And uh, Denzel Washington had been leaning on it or something, and he started laughing. He knocked all the glasses to the, f to the floor, broke all the glasses. And this is the first time I knew that he was there. And I look over, and it's Denzel Washington. So I just started yelling at him. Uh, you know, come on, Denzel. I'm trying to do some work here. Have a little respect. And the, the interesting thing was how Lenny um, lightened up and was a different person, and the tone in the room was different after he laughed because laughing uh, humanizes people. Mm -hmm. It humanizes celebrities who try to seem somewhat above the rest of us, but when they laugh, they're brought down to the same level of, as everybody else. You know, there, all of a sudden, there's a bond, there's a connection, uh, there's a feeling that these are real people. So, uh, you know, I, was, I had a great time uh, doing that one. Well, you're able to break the barriers with uh, Lenny and Denzel, but Ed, how about Vanilla Ice? Well, Vanilla Ice is an idiot. <laughs> I don't know if he's an idiot still. He may have gotten some wisdom over time, but we found out that he was going to be performing at this club in Panama City Beach, Florida. And I was like, you know what? We got the budget. 
let's go down. It was spring break, so we could get some spring break uh, activity as well. So go down to, to, to talk to Vanilla Ice. We booked it. We get in there backstage uh, early in the day and uh, talk about somebody who's trying to seem above it all. You're Vanilla Ice, okay? <laughs> have, some, have some humility. And this was the point in his career where he was trying to copy Cypress Hill and doing, like, drug material and so on. Anyway, so I start doing an interview with the guy, and I'm trying to, you know, I try to keep the interviews light and fun, but he keeps talking about how horrible his life is. Back and forth, and he took, I have a rule with celebrities. You get three shots on me. After the third shot, I pull out the artillery. So he made three stupid cracks. I don't even remember what they were, but that was three. And when he said, you know, he said, my life's a rough road, terrible thing. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And I said, no, you have to be of a certain age to get this. But I said to him, oh, is Sally Struthers going to do a commercial for you? Because mm-hmm. um, she was an actress who at the time was doing commercials for uh, charities, for, uh, for poor children in parts of the world. He, got, he pauses, he gets mad, and he says, oh, puppet, gimmick. And I said, yeah, but one that's still working. And... Uh, uh, the interview concluded. You know, we did a couple <laughs> more questions. Concluded. We leave. We're getting in the car. And all of a sudden, his manager comes out and says, Hey, guys. Yeah. He says, Ice doesn't want to do the interview. Like, what? He says, Ice doesn't want to do the interview. What do you mean? He doesn't want to do the interview. Do you mean he doesn't want us to use it? Yeah. He doesn't want to do the interview. I said, well, here's the thing. When we first approached to book this, he could have said no. When we got here, you could have said no. If you'd stopped the interview midway, would it, we would have said okay. But we finished the interview. We're done. It's recorded. And he says, well, Ice isn't going to be happy. I said, that's not my job to make him happy. <laughs> we take about six steps, get in the car. Before the seatbelts are on, the phone rings. It's Ice's uh, record label. And the guy says, thank you so much for interviewing him. We really appreciate it. I know he enjoyed the interview. Thanks for coming out. Because um, I think probably he, Vanilla Ice called the record company, and the record company said, do you see anybody else there interested in interviewing you? <laughs> well, not so positive with Vanilla Ice, but I know you had some positive interactions with Canadian content, Avril Lavigne and Nickelback. Ed, you love these people. Well, I, I did love Nickelback. I, I'm a fan of all of their song. Um, and, uh, but, uh, I sent an email to, uh, Chad, uh, to get him on the late great Ed the Sock podcast. Um, and, uh, I know he got the message, but he didn't get back to me. So he is dead to me. Um, Uh Avril Lavigne though, uh, I, I had a, I made a policy of interviewing, uh, performers who were not famous yet and maybe would never be famous, but I felt that. They should be treated the same as any other performer. They should be given the respect, given the, the chance to have an interview, so on. So Avril was one of those people. Christina Aguilera was one. Uh, Avril was another one. Her album hadn't come out yet. So everyone's like, who is this kid? So I did an interview with her. And it, it, it went very well. And then at the end of it, out of the blue, she grabs me, puts me down on the floor and straddles me. And then... Mm-hmm. <laughs> flips her hair back, and gives a porn star look to the camera. And I'm like, don't do this. You're 17. 
Um, you know, I, I had nothing to do with arranging this at all. Um, and then uh, her album came out like the next day or something, and she was huge. The next time mm-hmm. we go to interview her is at a mall in Toronto that is not prepared for the audience, the, the people they're going to get. We had to go on the roof of the mall to get an interview with her because otherwise people would see her and they would go crazy. And she did the same thing. She ends the, ends the thing by straddling me. Uh, and she introduced me to her family. Got along very well. She was always a very, very nice down-to-earth person. The uh, flip side of Avril Levine might have been a mutual North York brother to your colleague Steve and I. The rapper Snow wanted to physically assault you, Ed. Yeah, I made some joke one afternoon on much about... Because Snow had been in jail. And I made some admittedly cheap joke about him being somebody's wife in jail or something stupid like that. And the story I heard was his mother had been listening and had misconstrued what I said and made it something like he got killed in prison. I don't know what, I don't know what it was. All I know is she got very upset and she uh, and so got a call. The management of Much got a call from Snow's manager that Snow's on his way downtown to Much to beat, up, to beat me up and that the manager was going to show up and stop him from doing anything stupid. Now, I never even knew about this until like an, a day later, so obviously the manager intercepted him. But, uh, you know, I, I have had no cause to speak to Snow in the intervening <laughs> years um, to, try to try to clear that up. Another funny thing was when I was doing um, a, uh, a bit about uh, Mariah Carey coming into much music, and she had this demand. Uh, the, like she had this entourage and she had demands about the kind of fabric that could cover the, the, the couches and I made some comment about her uh, bringing in uh, enough, uh, enough of an entourage that she could have every square, uh, square inch of her butt kissed at the same time um, and the record company the, the president of the record company in Canada called Much Music and said she's not coming in now because, you know, you had Ed say that. She's not coming in. Have Ed apologize. And I, I, would, I apologized in a way that was just not an apology. Um, <laughs> she came in anyway, and then she was going through a divorce uh, from Tommy Matola, who was the head of Sony Music. He contacted Much, asked for a copy of that video, said it was the funniest thing you'd ever seen. You can get fans in the strangest places, Ed. Yeah. I want to ask you about one final thing, and this was probably your biggest assignment of your career live at Woodstock 99 in upstate New York. What was that whole experience like? Uh, you know, uh, I was one of the few people that didn't rush in and say, yes, I'll go when, when I was asked. Because I didn't care, Woodstock. I first made sure that uh, I would have my own room, that I would have my own shower, and if there wasn't air conditioning, I was bringing fans. Because it was July, it was really hot. And everyone laughed at me, but they didn't laugh when I was in a nice comfortable room and uh, they were sweltering, sleeping in the, 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 the RV. I mean, I could see the place was going to go straight to hell because the spirit of the original Woodstock was not there. This was a thing to make money. It wasn't some idea, you know, peace, love and all that. This was to make money. And the people at the vending, at the, you know, the, the vending stops, the, the stores, the booths uh, were charging an enormous amount of money. 
uh, for, for water, for example. And you have to understand, this was being held on a decommissioned U.S. Army base. Army bases do not have, like, doorways or any places with shade where anybody could be lurking. So there was no shade. It was on the blacktop. So the sun's beaten down and beaten back up. They're being charged a fortune for, for water. And they started to go a little crazy. They, uh, the organizers hadn't arranged to have the uh, outhouses uh, drained on a regular mm. basis. Yikes. So I don't know how this happened, how it started. They had knocked over a couple of outhouses, and they were body surfing in um, fecal matter. I was not there. Uh, that was something Rick Campanelli was covering. Because <laughs> they knew guy. that if they told Rick to cover it, Rick never said no. So you just knew that the place was going to hell. And then the last night of the concert, Sookin and I are up on that platform. There was two broadcast platforms, ours and MTV. MTV was across the way from us. And I could just feel the energy turning really, really ugly. Like there was just something about the crowd that it, 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 I saw them starting to tear apart the hoarding and take the, the big pieces of paneling, you know, the huge pieces of wood, um, and started tearing it apart. And I said to Sukian, this is about to turn into Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. And Alanis Morissette was up there, and she was telling people at the end of her thing to, you know, like, hey, we're here to have a good time. Everybody chill out. And then that idiot, Fred Durst, who shouldn't have been there anyways, because Fred Durst is not a musician. Uh, he's just somebody who yells while there's people playing instruments around him. Fred Durst got up there and said, forget what Alanis said. Let's break shit. Because that was the name of one of his songs. And that just, that, uh, that uh, permission just uncorked the whole thing. All <laughs> of the hoardings came down. The uh, people were jumping on top of the wood, the paneling, and surfing as the people underneath were moving it along. And of course, these people were drunk and high. They fell off the, the thing and, and were injured. And then they had, like, it, it just got so bad they had to stop the concert. And the police came and tried to push the people, the, the, the people back a distance. Because hell hath no fury like spoiled middle-class white kids <laughs> who uh, don't get everything that they want. So uh, there was a line uh, in the distance, and they were beating on metal garbage cans and setting fires in them. It was tribal. It was insane. Um, and when things went bad, the Americans went over to the MTV platform and took... Uh, empty water bottles, peed in them, and threw bottles of urine at them, and threw metal tent pegs at them. Our side of it, Canadians came, stood around our platform, three deep, to protect us. Shows the difference in the relationship to the audience. Eventually, uh, we were escorted to the back, uh, to where the media compound was. We go over to the Much Music Winnebago, which was uh, the headquarters, much management tells us, tells the VJs, there's expensive equipment on our broadcast platform. Go out there and bring the equipment back. Yeah, oh, boy. Yeah, so they're telling their on-air talent to go into a riot in front, just to give you some sense, in front of our uh, booth, a uh, car had been overturned and set on fire, and they wanted us to go get the equipment, the expensive equipment. We were more expendable than the equipment. <laughs> Which goes to show you 
what it's like to be a star in Canadian television. We just we told them to forget it. If you want the equipment, you go get it. <laughs> well, uh, Woodstock 99 definitely goes down history as a huge calamity, but it's uh, good to hear, Ed, that you have a good side to you that people don't see, trying to make the best of a horrible situation. I want to thank you for your time. It's great and honor to talk to you, and uh, I'm going to go back to Stephen, if I may. Well, you want him now. <laughs> It's gonna be guess, a huge. Guess... It's gonna be a huge letdown. People listening to me, and you're going back to that guy. Like it's, it, I understand. It, people are tuning out right now. Uh, if they didn't tune out while he was talking the first time, they're gonna tune out now. But listen, it's your show. Whatever you want, okay? Uh, I'm gonna go get him. All right, Aaron. Thanks, Ed. Great talking to you. Yeah, whatever. What a waste of time. Oh, okay. Um, you, apparently, you want me back now. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Yeah, that was. Uh, Pretty much as I expected it to go down. Yeah, you, you caught him at a you, you caught him at a grumpy part of the day. <laughs> yeah, that one part of the day. Yeah, Steve, I want to talk to you about Triumph, the insult comic dog. This is All the right. creation of Robert's <laughs> the creation of Robert Smigel on Late Night with Conan O'Brien in 1997. Here's a taste of Triumph. Tonight we're featuring one of the country's biggest entertainers. No, I'm not talking about Adam Sandler. I'm talking, of course, about our good friend. Triumph the insult comic dog. This. Just think, me, Triumph on the Hollywood Squares. It's always been a dream of mine to be on Hollywood Squares. But then again, I eat my own food. Thank you very much for that, because, uh, you know, I don't get enough hearing about him. <laughs> well, that's why I wanted to see if you're comfortable talking about it. Steven, you call him Triumph the ripoff dog. Why exactly? Did I call him that? <laughs> Did I call him that at some point? All right. Um, here's the story. I get a little tired of the story, but here's the story. When Ed was still on uh, cable, uh, cable ten, I sent. No, was he on cable ten? I think he might have graduated to uh, to city TV at that point. I sent tapes, VHS tapes, because this is before sending digital files. Uh, I sent VHS tapes to a woman who I believe her name was Paula Davis who was the talent booker, the head talent booker for the show, about having Ed come on as a character. And we discussed it, and she watched the tape. She said she thought there was some uh, opportunity there. And uh, when I next called her, she said, uh, no, they decided that it, wasn't, it wouldn't work. Okay, I'm disappointed. But then a short time later, I get calls from people saying, congratulations for making it on Conan. And I said, I, I had no idea what they were talking about. And they said, yeah, you were on Conan. Your, your puppet looked a little different, but you were on Conan. I said, I, I was not on Conan. So then I find out that it's this uh, dog puppet created by the head writer of the show at the time. And you have to understand in show business, the head writer and the, the head talent coordinator uh, talk all the time because they're coordinating uh, creative for the show. I have no proof that they talked about Ed. It's just... Uh, unlikely that they, they wouldn't have anyway. And uh, so the puppet is, uh, at that time, Ed was basically just doing insults. And here's a, a, a dog puppet that is has a, uh, a character voice, has a cigar, and does insults. You know, Borscht Belt vaudeville type stuff. And wow, that's, uh, you know, that's a remarkable coincidence. And, you know, it becomes difficult to accept that, such a thing could be a coincidence. I mean, stranger coincidences have happened in the world. So 
Is it possible? I, I guess so. If I had never sent anything to Conan, I would say, yeah, the, it, the, you know, the, the chance of him having seen Ed w- would have been small. But I did mm-hmm. send tapes. Tapes were available there. Uh, I mean, the first time I got on Much Music uh, with Ed, I had sent some VHS tapes of Ed, Ed's Night Party with Eric Tunney to a producer at Much. And a different producer called me a few weeks later, said that uh, he'd seen the tape sitting there, he picked it up and watched it, and wanted to have, do some, some promos with Ed. So these, you know, this is how stuff circulates in these environments. And then when uh, Chum decided to bring Conan's show to Toronto for a week, I said, I called the executive producer, uh, Jeff Ross, and I said, listen, why don't we let, make it water under the bridge and have Ed take Triumph around to places in Toronto that aren't on the tourist map? And he said, yeah, that's not going to happen. Mm. And then he proceeded to ask me for a favor. Um, You're kidding. <laughs> no, he proceeded to ask me for a favor. Um, so, that's Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, it's been said to me um, that uh, Smigel, Smigel himself said in an Entertainment Weekly interview that he sometimes goes back and, re- and changes what the dog said to people. So that the it's more of an outrageous statement than was than was originally said, or whatever way they edit it, which means to me that he's not great on his feet with the puppet, and probably it's possible there was some fear that Ed could show him up because um, I do not go back and reloop dot audio. That is just cheap uh, to do that. So. That's where that stands. Though I was in New York with my uh, L.A. agent in a meeting with Comedy Central, and they were interested. And then the woman's called out of the office, and she comes back. She says, I'm sorry, I was just told we'd signed a deal with the dog puppet to do six episodes of a series, and we obviously can't do two similar characters at the same time. So, And his, his, ep- his show lasted maybe six episodes. It, it, every time he's tried to have a, uh, his own show, it has failed. Meantime, Ed, you know, Ed's Night Party, uh, later Ed and Red's Night Party, ran 14 years in Canada, 16 if you include uh, on cable. And Ed was on Much Music for 14 years, 13, 14 years. So, you know, Ed obviously was able to to hold an audience. And Ed evolved over time because, you know, we realized Ed was having a real impact on people on Much Music, on the young viewers, so, like, there was a responsibility there to, to, you know, there's people listening to Ed like he's some kind of authority. And while I never suggested that they should, it was a reality. So, you know, we took it seriously, started doing editorials about social uh, current events and, and politics and so on, um, which were really well received. And so, you know, Ed became more of a commentator, less of a shticky uh, insult comic. Um, whereas the dog puppet, last time I saw him, was still doing the same exact shtick he was doing in like 1997. So well, we went in different directions. Not only the same stuff, but as you may know, for what it's worth, Triumph, the comic insult dog hand puppet is still being used and Robert Smigel and a bunch of his production team got arrested just last summer for trying to shoot a segment outside the January 6th Capitol Hill riot hearings. So they haven't, uh, they're still having their troubles. Just to close off this, Steve, have you ever personally met or heard from either Robert Smigel or Conan O'Brien? I um, was in the media event, the press conference when Conan uh, showed up, 
and I had Ed pop up, and Conan said something to the effect of, see, this is the effect we're having on TV. We do stuff, and people, people are copying it in different countries around the world. Oh, and boy. the audience was like, oh, no, no, that's not <laughs> what happened. And he said, oh, no, of course, uh, you did it first, and we copied it. And people were like, yeah, yeah, I think that's um, uh, That was the closest I got to Conan O'Brien. I have to say that after I, I, I never watched him again after that, because all I could think of was, who else's work um, is he co- are they coincidentally very similar to? You know, I can't, yeah. I can't unsee, how do I know everything that's coming out of them is something that generated in the writer's room and not elsewhere. So I just, the, the, the integrity just wasn't there for me. Um, so I'm definitely not Team Coco. And Smigel told uh, yep. a friend in common that he swears he knew nothing about Ed. That he likes Ed and thinks Ed is funny, but he, kn- he knew nothing about Ed. And uh, I don't know the man. I, I don't know, you know, I typically uh, trust what people tell me. It's usually a mistake. Um, so uh, I have no way to, to, to assess his, uh, you know, his credibility. So that's what he said, and that's what he said. Let's move on to someone you have more respect for. Your thoughts on Moses Neimer as a visionary, as a boss, and as a human being? Wow. Um, I mean, Moses, what he did... How ballsy he was to even get City TV started. People don't recognize in this day and age when people are trying to do edgy stuff everywhere how bland TV was in Canada, especially at the time that Moses and uh, Phyllis Switzer came up with City TV. Only somebody with Moses's, I can't, I'm not going to call it arrogance because it gets mistaken for that, but that single mindedness, that self confidence that belief in his vision, which an individual like that is going to rub people the wrong way because the people that he's rubbing the wrong way are the people telling him, you can't do this, and he's proving them wrong. His vision, what he managed to, the vision he communicated to other people, that other people came to share, that he led, there is no question that it uh, led to the greatest era of creativity uh, and originality in Canadian television. The format for Much Music in City TV was copied around the world, licensed, I should say, around the world. People loved the idea. Guys like Moses, you know, there's there's a t-shirt my wife has that says, uh, well-behaved women seldom make history. And it's true about men too. You know, M- Moses, he butted heads with some people, but that's because they want, my understanding, they wanted him to compromise his vision. And he wasn't gonna do that. And yeah, he could be tough on people in the building if he thought that they didn't really... Like, he had a meeting with me once, and it was like two bighorn uh, sheep rams smashing heads together. Because we both had a sense of vision for what we wanted to do. And, you know, my early days with uh, Newton Cable was the same kind of vision as to what City TV was. We were on the same, the same wavelength. And we also had a tendency to piss some people off who told us, don't do it that way. Uh, you, you piss them off when you say you're going to do it in a way that's different. You piss them off more when you do it in a way that's different and it succeeds. So Moses and I, you know, we, we clashed that one time. And after that, I mean, he showed me a tremendous amount of respect um, the whole time I was there. 
I can't say I ever had any untoward encounters with him. There were other people. He would challenge you. And if you didn't stand your ground and, and speak up for your vision and why you did something, then justifiably, he was like, he didn't want people there who were just there for a paycheck. He wanted people who were along for building uh, something. And so people have said he was, he's, he was prickly and stuff. He never really was to me. That one meeting where it was really creative, uh, you know, two creative people disagreeing, that was the only time that there was ever any animosity. I know other people had different experiences with him, but you had to earn Moses' respect. And once you earned his respect, uh, the relationship was a different thing. Uh, Rick Campanelli has been on this podcast. I cannot find a human being on the planet that does not like Rick Campanelli. Agreed? That that asshole Campanelli, I <laughs> tell you, he just fooled everybody, hasn't he? No, Rick Campanelli, uh, we have been friends for uh, 25 years, we figured. Um, Ed was uh, co-hosting, guest co-hosting the radio morning show, the FM radio morning show that Rick was doing in Toronto. Uh, did it all through December 2022 and worked together. So, you know, there's an easy chemistry there. And, you know, we've been friends for years. And Rick legitimately is the guy you see, you know, people say, he's so phony. It's like, no, no, in fact, he is not. Because yeah. people couldn't believe somebody could be that <laughs> positive. Here's an example of Rick, okay? When he started there, they gave him the Joe job of going around with masking tape and a marker and putting everybody's name on the back of their chairs in the big environment. A lousy job. Rick said, oh, it was great. I got to meet people and see who people were and put a face to a name. Like, he always finds some positive way of reflecting horrible, horrible jobs. <laughs> well, that was certainly my, uh, my brief experience with him was very positive as well. So everyone says he's a great guy. Steve, let's close off with this. I imagine you had to spend a lot of time crouched down out of the camera shot to play Ed over the years. You are now in your early 50s physically. How are you? Oh, I'm just fine. I'm just fine. <laughs> you can still get down. No, no knee issues. Well, okay, here's the thing. As you discover when you're getting older, getting down isn't the problem. Getting back up <laughs> is a whole different back challenge. That's always um, the issue. But the truth is that uh, with Ed, it's always shot so that uh, Ed is in frame. I stopped hiding behind things a, a long time ago because that made it clear Ed was a puppet. We got Ed out moving amongst people, living in the, you know, the real world. So we, you know, there wasn't something in front of him all the time, like it was some Punch and Judy show. So primarily when I'm doing it, I am actually, you know, I'm standing up. It can still be uncomfortable. Uh, try holding yeah. your hand up at that <laughs> angle for a length of time. But... Um, so far, I'm still physically capable of, uh, of doing what I need to do. <laughs> Excellent. And on that note, where can we best follow Stephen Kersner, and where can we best follow Ed the Sock? My signature content and podcast doctor sites will be up shortly. I do have, as Stephen, I do have a, uh, a page on LinkedIn, which I participate in. Um, I have a Facebook page under my own name, which I, I put things up in. But primarily, the interest is in Ed. Uh, Ed has a Facebook page. Um, I think it's called Ed the Sock Official. Ed is on Twitter. At, uh, the name is at Ed the Sock. On uh, TikTok and Instagram, Ed underscore the underscore Sock. Ed also, Ed also has a profile on LinkedIn, which has more people <laughs> following it than mine. And um, 
new music uh it'll be uh, newmusicnow.ca newmusicnow.ca you'll see Ed doing uh vj stuff introducing some really talented artists uh unsung tal uh, unsung artists uh from across the country and we imagine soon that that'll expand internationally fantastic well not only is ed the sock still existing he is thriving and uh thanks for your time today and i'm wishing you continued success Stephen. to you too andrew thank you for taking the time my pleasure. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of Stephen Kersner and Ed DeSock, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.